Good morning, church. It is good to be here today. You know, Landon gave a, a great introduction, probably a better one than I deserve. Uh, so that gives me an opportunity to brag on you guys a little bit. When I got here to church today, I see a lot of faces that watched me get baptized over 15 years ago. I see a lot of the faces that when I first was reading the Bible up here had to look through this glass podium because I was not tall enough for you to actually see me over that. I see Monica and Jenny who taught me in the second and third grade and a bunch of other classes who, if I learned the right Bible verses, they would take us to CC's. And they took us to CC's, and because of that and many other things, are still some of the coolest people to this day in my mind. You know, I, I see Gail Dunlap, who probably holds the record for one of the people who has told me the most times to stop running to the gym, but at the same time has given me some of the most encouraging and influential compliments I've ever had. I, I saw the Fertigs, and, and Scott probably wouldn't even remember this, but at the YMCA right before I left for college, gave me some of the best advice ever. You know, we all look for churches that'll suit what we need. And at that moment, he didn't know this. When I went to college, I was going to find a church with a college ministry. And just casually, he's talking about churches, and he made the comment, find the church that you can serve best. Not the one that serves you best, but you can serve best. And for whatever reason, that stuck with me, and that stayed in my mind. And I have shared that with probably 30 or 40 people over the years, and maybe Maybe one of them have actually taken that advice too. But I look out, I see a church, you know, the, the walls of this building house the church, past and present members, who, who molded me, who scolded me, who shaped me. Uh, some of my best friends went here, gave me some of those, gave me some of my favorite memories. So when I say it's an honor to get to stand in front of you today and attempt to teach you guys something when you guys taught me so much, I, I truly do mean that. When my parents shared that, they were looking for people to speak, and I think, albeit jokingly, we were like, you should do it. I jumped at the opportunity to try to give back even just a little bit of what you guys were able to give me. So thank you so much for this opportunity and for allowing me to get up here and speak with you today. Let me go ahead and begin with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day. Uh, just thank you for, for every day because of the sacrifice that you made, that, that you gave us an opportunity to come to know you to love you, to seek you, to seek your face, Lord. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to worship uh, and to be surrounded by a great community of believers, God. God, as I begin to speak, Lord, I pray that you speak through me and, and oftentimes in spite of me that, God, uh, your message gets sent, that we have open hearts, open minds to what you want us to say and not what we feel and what we want to hear, Lord. Thank you for all you do. In your name we pray. Amen. So when you're faced with coming up with a sermon, especially one when there's not a current sermon series, you're going through a lot of different ideas, a lot of different things. And for some reason, what kept sticking in my head was this idea of dealing with uncertainty. We all just went through 2020. We all just went through a lot of uncertainty and probably heard quite a few sermons about that. So I'm not expecting to be able to stand up here and tell you guys anything you don't already know. My hope for today is that we leave this church realizing that we have plans and calling on what we already know and just remembering it just a little bit earlier, giving us a trigger, giving us something to think about so that we come to terms with what our plan is to what we know about God and his character just a little bit sooner than we would have before. Because church, I think if we can do that, we can make great changes in how we behave and how we make decisions moving forward. So I'm going to start with a little story, and uh, Landon actually mentioned this. So when I was moving from Finley, Ohio to Midland, Texas last year, 
I decided I was going to do something, and that thing was jumping out of an airplane. For whatever reason, I am terrified of heights, but I was going to jump out of an airplane. So there's a place in Middletown, Ohio, where you can go skydiving. But normally you have to call a few weeks in advance, get set up, and go. I didn't have that, that luxury, because I was coming to Louisville, then going to Little Rock, then going down to Texas the next day. Really needed it to be a, a quick hitter. So first, check the weather. It's going to be a good day. It's going to be a good weather day. So I call ahead. What are the chances if I show up without a schedule, you guys would be able to get me on a plane? And they say, well, we'll really have to see who shows up that day. So I go ahead. I drive. It's like two minutes off my route here. I show up to the airport. I ask, what are the chances I can get on a plane? They say, there's a, there's a chance somebody hasn't shown up yet, but you're going to have to fill out this waiver. So I go through this 10-minute process, fill out the waiver. I go back. All right, waiver's filled out. They look and they say, it's not showing up for some reason. They try to do some things. You need to do it again. My time's running out already. I have like an hour window that I can hop on this plane or else I need to come home. Well, fill out the waiver again. I go up. All right, do you got it? She says, all right, we've got it. I said, all right, do you know if there's a chance I'll be able to get on a plane? And she says, you have five minutes. Put your phone in the locker. Go out there. Put on the harness. You have five minutes to hop on this plane. I'm like, all right, let's do this. So I run out. Throw on the harness real quick, which is probably not the best idea anyway when you're about to jump out. But throw on the harness real quick. The instructor's out there. He tightens it up. We start getting buckled up. We hop on the plane. We're flying up. Now, as Landon also mentioned, I have my pilot's license. I'm actually really comfortable in small planes. Not worried about this part at all. I am sitting right by the door. They open the door. I can see out. I am feeling great. I am really excited. The lights change. They start tightening everything, strapping us down, and we're about to go. And I'm going to be the second group, the second person to jump out of this airplane. So the door opens, the first people go, and at that moment is the first time I realize, ooh, <laughs> I'm not sure if I actually want to do this. I'm not sure if this is really what I thought I was getting myself into. But at this moment, I also realize I'm really excited for the experience. I don't want my fears to restrict my experiences. So as funny as it is, you're strapped to another person. You think you're going to, you know, jump out the plane. It's going to be this glorious thing. No, it's a three-foot-tall door. So you're strapped to this other person, squatting like this. And all you do is stand there, and their instructor jumps. And he jumps, and it pulls you out. And at that moment, you're falling backwards, watching the plane falling away, realizing you shouldn't have jumped out of the plane. So we're falling. The free fall... Felt like it took two seconds, felt like it took 30 years. I probably aged about 10 in that process, yelling like crazy, whatever. We pull the canopy. Oh, thank goodness, canopy opens. You're good. We're floating. I have my pilot's license. This is what's really cool because now we're just flying. I'm not falling. We're just flying. I'm familiar with this. Out of nowhere, I get lightheaded, like really lightheaded. You know when you stand up really quick and sometimes you kind of black out for a little bit? I got that lightheaded. I blacked out. Conscious. Cannot see a single thing. But for whatever reason, I'm feeling confident, I guess, when I talk to my instructor and I say, hey, I just want to let you know, I completely blacked out. I think I'm going to pass out. But I said it just like that. He had to be very taken off. Like, I think I'm going to pass out, completely blacked out, can't see a thing. And his response, the most reassuring thing, huh, Right? That's what you really want to hear, right? So he starts telling me, all right, let's try this. Try flapping your arms. So I'm up there, 4,000 feet above the ground, strapped to the chest of another guy going, on the ground, you're like, this guy's trying to fly. Like, what's he think he's doing? He's like, is that helping? No. All right, try wiggling your legs. 
Nothing. All right, do both. So there I am, again, going like this, up in the air. Nothing is working. And he says, all right, can you lift your legs? And I said, yes. And I, I try it. I lift my legs. And he goes, all right, all I'm going to ask is when you're about to land, when we're about to touch down, I want you to lift your legs. Now, at this moment, I get really scared. Because that's when I realized I'm dangling below this guy. If I pass out, if I can't lift my legs, when we hit the ground, my feet are going to hit first, and he's going to tumble over top of me. I kind of like the orientation of my face right now. And I don't think if I pass out, my face is going to stay in this orientation because he's going to smash me right into the ground. So I get worried, and that's when I start realizing I actually have a task in this to do. And that's to get my legs lifted up. And so that's all I'm thinking. Stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. End up, he says, all right, lift your legs. I do. I'm able to lift my legs. We touch down. We hit the ground. And the color starts coming back. And uh, craziest experience I've probably ever had. One of the coolest things ever. But in that moment, if I ask you, when did I face uncertainty? When did I not have a plan? You would probably look at me and say, it was when you blacked out. That's when you faced uncertainty. But along that whole path, I faced uncertainty. When I woke up that morning, I had to check the weather, see was it going to be good. When I got to the airport, wasn't sure if I was going to make it on the plane. When I was standing on the plane, wasn't sure if I wanted to jump out. When I was free-falling, I wasn't sure if the canopy was going to open. I was pretty sure. We had a backup canopy. I was going to be all right. But what the difference between those moments and the original moment that I had was, or the, the, the blackout moment versus those moments, is I didn't have a plan or I forgot my plan. So when I was first thinking about this story, I thought, I didn't have a plan. Who would? Who would think, what am I going to do if I black out when I go skydiving? Not many people would. But when I thought about it, I realized I did have a plan. My plan that morning was not to drive to the airport, to strap on a parachute, to fly in the air, to jump out of a plane, to pull the chute, to glide myself to the ground, and to land. My plan that morning was to strap myself to somebody who knew how to do that. To strap myself to someone who knew how to get me to the ground. To strap myself to someone who didn't need me to get me to a point of safety. Who just needed me to show up and strap myself to them that day. What I later found out, because the moment that I thought was the most important moment for me, lifting my legs before I touched the ground, if you watch videos of skydivers, uh, tandem skydivers, right before they hit the ground, the instructor kind of drops beneath the guy and slides under them. So the one thing that I thought I needed to do, I didn't even need to do that. I was up there because my original plan went perfectly to strap myself to someone who had done that 6,000 times before. That's not a joke. That's just a crazy guy. But 6,000 times before, I landed safely, and I have a really cool story to talk about. And I was thinking about that, and I was reading a book a few weeks ago. And the book's called The Power of Habit. And the power of habit talks about this thing called the habit cycle. And it goes like this. You start with this trigger. You start with something that tells you, I need to take these steps forward. I need to do this thing. You get to a routine. So you have this trigger. That turns you into a routine. What are the steps that you take forward? Then you have some kind of reward that encourages you to make those decisions again in the future. And the guy in the book proposes that this is about 90% of the things that we do in our lives are some sort of habit. 90% of the things we do are these habits, and that's why they're so hard to change. So he pitches this whole idea on how we can change our habits through a bunch of different things. 
And there's one thing I completely agree with what he said on this habit cycle. I think that's completely true. But I think this also applies to conscious decisions with one little tweak. And I think that also applies to habits with one little tweak. And that is the decision point. So I call this the decision cycle, but the decision point. And let's say you're going, so he talks about every day at work. He would go and he would go get a cookie. And when he would go to get this cookie, he'd come back to his desk, eat the cookie, and be like, why did I just do that? Why did I just eat that cookie? I told myself I wasn't going to eat the cookie, all these things, but he did it. And so he proposes he had a trigger, he had a routine, he had a reward. So he's trying to figure out what's the reward I'm getting, what's the trigger that's making me eat this cookie, or want to go get it. In my experience, and in talking with a lot of other people, if you have a habit like that that you are trying to break, you may follow that cycle. But if you are trying to break that habit, there is a single moment that you will have this decision point. You will realize in that moment, wait, I said this morning I wasn't going to get a cookie. And you have the decision to go get that cookie or to not get that cookie. And any decision you make, there is something that prompts the decision, the actual decision itself, which prompts your path forward, and then your reward or whatever it is that you do this whole thing for. In every case. And especially when it comes to habits, when it comes to things that just pop into our head like that, I think there are two things that we can do that can change everything with this. And that's moving, or I guess one thing, and two things to do that. One thing, moving this decision point forward. So if you're going to get a cookie and you don't want to go get a cookie, if you can move that decision point forward and you have that realization at your desk that I'm not actually going to go get a cookie, I think you're more likely to not get that cookie than if you have that decision point when you are about to take your first bite. So if you can move that decision point earlier, you can find ways to help change your habits, to remember things sooner, and to put yourself in a place where you're following the plan that you have set for yourself. So how do we do that? I think the first thing that we do is we figure out what that routine that we want to do is. What is our actual plan that we want to follow in this instance? And then the second thing that we got to do is in that plan, how do we make good decisions to follow our plan? So today, I want to talk about a guy who we can see had a plan. And it's funny, it's the exact guy we talked about in our Bible class this morning. It's David. You can see in his life, he had a plan. And I want to talk about how did we know that he had a plan? How did he know? How did he trust in the plan he had? And then the next point I want to talk about is how can we make good decisions that align with that plan that we should have? I think I might have skipped a couple slides here, but we'll go for it. So we don't always remember the plan. That's the main point. How can we remember this plan? So I want to start off by talking about Psalms 3, 1 through 4. And in Psalms 3... This is David, and David is actually running away from his son Absalom. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the story of David um, and, and his son Absalom, pretty much David's this awesome guy we talked about in class. Uh, he gets anointed. He kills Goliath. He then has to run away from Saul because Saul knows David is going to take his kingdom from him. So Saul's constantly trying to kill him. David finally wins. He gets the kingdom. Well, then his own son, he has all these issues where uh, his son's trying to take his kingdom. Absalom's doing that. So David is running away from his own son. And I will read this verse, starting in uh, just verse 1 for the whole, whole chapter. 
And I apologize. The one request my mom had was that my font was big enough for everyone to see. And when they first put the verses up there, I was like, ooh, this might not be big enough for everyone. So uh, just follow along with me as I read this, and the rest of the slides hopefully will be bigger font for you guys. So verse 1, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake up again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. We read this. We see a guy in a time that most of us probably wouldn't have a plan for when our son tries to take our kingdom from us, for when this person that's close to us tries to take something from us. But we see a man who knows his plan, who says, God, I will not fear, though there's tens of thousands around me. For the Lord, or from the Lord comes deliverance. And I want to peek back now to a different section of Psalms. And we can see, or of Psalms, a different section of David's life, and we can see exactly where this comes from, exactly where David has this confidence, this trust in God. So first, I'm going to read 1 Chronicles 16. We're going to stay in this chapter for a little bit. Verses 8 through 11. It says, Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell all of his wonderful acts, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. So in this verse, in this passage, David talks about the Lord being praiseworthy. He talks about what God's done. He says, sing praise to him, his wonderful acts. His name is glorious. He is strong. So what we see is David has attributed characteristics to God. So the number one thing about David's plan was to know God. And in that, David can know God through a few different ways. One, he looks back on his own life. So in this instance, when we're talking about in 1 Chronicles, David has already gotten his kingdom. He is now bringing back the Ark of the Covenant into Israel, which had been taken away by uh, another country. So he's bringing that back in Israel. So David has been through a lot. So we can look back in his life and say, God, I can see exactly where you have acted in my life. Where you have maybe not done what I wanted you to do, but I'm thankful for that because it's gotten me to where I am now with the knowledge, with the wisdom that I have today. So David looks back in his own life and he can say, I can know God through that. The other thing, and this is the craziest thing to me, when we try to figure out who God is, we use this entire book up here. We can look through the entire book. We can see the life of Jesus and what he stood for. When David was trying to figure out who God was, David had the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If we had those five books, I don't think a lot of us would come to the same conclusions that David did. And in fact, in a later chapter of Psalm, I'm going to read uh, some of the descriptors that David had for God. And he says, God brings salvation. He's glorious. He does marvelous things. He is great. He is worthy of praise. He is feared uh, among all gods or above all gods. He is majestic. He is strong. He is righteous. He is faithful. He is holy. And then all throughout the Psalms, we see David talk about God's unfailing love. 
I can assure you, if you gave me the first five books of the Bible, the first descriptor for God would be, he's pretty legalistic. He's got a lot of rules. He's got a lot of things he wants us to follow. And he likes telling stories, too. That would probably be the only two things I'd get away. But David looks in his own life. He sees how God acts in his own life. He speaks to the prophets. He speaks to the priests. He knows how God is. So David knows who God is. And he trusts in the character and the attributes of God because of his own knowledge of that. The next thing that he does is later on in that chapter, chapter 16, he says, Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. You, his servants, the descendants of Israel, his chosen ones, the children of Jacob. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. So he remembers God's deeds. Not only does he know the character of God and what God will likely do because of the character of God, he remembers the exact deeds that God has. This is where he looks back and sees how God behaved with the Israelites, with his chosen people. So he knows God and he knows what God has done. And he trusts that God can continue to do that. And so we look in a little later in that chapter, starting in verse 28. And David says, Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And so this idea of ascribing to the Lord, he's saying, give this to God. Give all these things to God. Give him glory and strength. Um, Glory to his name. All these things, because again, he knows the character of God, he knows the deeds God's done, and he trusts in God's unchanging character. He trusts that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He trusts that all these things he's seen in the past, that the attributes of God that he knows so well, he trusts that those are the same attributes that he's going to have tomorrow that God's going to have in 10 years, and that God has this very moment when he's facing uncertainty. So it's easy if we think, what do we want our baseline plan to be in life? What do we want that base plan to be? If we know who God is, we know what he's done, and we trust that that's not going to change, and that's not going to be different in our lives than it was in the lives of David and the lives of so many others, it's not hard for us to realize that's the baseline plan I want. That's the plan that sticks true, that stays true, that never changes. And I I think back, I think the last time I spoke in front of you guys, I was a senior in high school, and I also talked about plans changing. And how in that moment, I talked about how God has all these plans for us, and how if I make a plan this morning, and that might change because of traffic or weather or whatever, I want to put my plan in the one whose plans don't change. And we talked through kind of the story of the whole Bible and how at every point you'd be like, oh, I bet God's plans changed there when Adam sinned. Mm, kind of ruined the plans, didn't it? No, that was in God's plan. When Jesus died on the cross, if you're an outside person looking in, you're going to say that's when God's plans changed because there's no way his son is supposed to die on the cross. But that was God's plan. We don't always see that, but that was God's plan. So we can trust in the unchanging nature of God because his plan doesn't change. So step one to how do we move that decision point sooner is we figure out what is my baseline plan. And church, I'm here today to say I believe most of you guys already know that your baseline plan, you already have this baseline plan, is figure out what God's will is for me and follow that. And if that's not you right now, then I encourage you, and we'll get to that later, but I encourage you to really evaluate where you're at in your life and if that's a plan worth following. Because I think it is. I really do believe 
that it is. But even though the rest of us probably already have this plan, consciously recognizing that that's the plan I'm going to follow, that's the plan that I want to have, helps us move that decision point a little quicker, helps us get through that decision point a little faster. Because now the decision isn't, what do I do? The decision is, I have this plan. Does this plan fit? Can I follow this plan? And obviously, church, I believe the answer is that, yes, this plan always fits. Now, one thing that's interesting about David is that we can look back. We can talk about David, and we can see that he trusted in God. He had this great plan. He he truly believed that. He knew God's character. He knew his deeds. He trusted that wouldn't change. We can see that in David's life, but we also can see the mistakes that David made. We also can see that after this moment, that after these moments that David is rejoicing in who God is and in his character, David kills a guy so he can be with that guy's wife, so he can take that guy's wife as his own. Not a great decision for us to have. So we can know what our plan is. We can have that baseline plan, but how do we go to that plan? How do we make sure that in every instance we are choosing the plan of God and that our decisions that we make in that instance are for the plan of God. So another passage I would like to read for you guys today is in 1 John uh, chapter 3, verses 11 through 18 today. And that says, For this message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So when you're first looking, how do I make a good decision? So maybe you're faced with uncertainty, and I guess you have two kind of cases of uncertainty. There's the one where things are just happening to you, and you're trying to figure out how to respond. You're just kind of in it, and that's more of a, God, I trust you, I trust your character, I'm stepping back. Then you have uncertainty, maybe in in your career, maybe in life, you have a couple options to choose. And you're trying to figure out, God, how do I align with your plan? That's the base plan I want. How do I align with that? The number one thing I think you can do is figure out how can I show love with this decision? The number one thing. And I love talking about love because I, I truly believe that that is, Jesus talks about over and over again in the New Testament, that is over and over again. Love God, love others. Show love in every decision you make. And that passage I just read specifically in verse 18, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truths. So when we're thinking, how do I behave? How do I choose my actions? How do I figure out what truth? It's show love in those things. Love is not just our thoughts and prayers, which I encourage you to reach out to people and say, I'm praying for you and pray with those people to really think about those things because that prompts us to action. But show love through our decisions, through what we do. So that begs the question, you know, how do we define love? My definition for love, probably a little different than your guys' definition for love. My definition is just putting others in front of yourselves regardless of the impact that it has 
on you. I truly think that if, if you are putting others above yourself, regardless of how that impacts you, that is one way we are showing love to the other people. But if we go through the Bible, you can find different ways um, to define love. And what I would say is there's a few key characteristics of how we define love and how we can choose what is the most loving thing in a certain instance. The first thing, I think that all love requires self-sacrifice. For it to be true love, it has to require some form of you self-sacrificing or being willing, at least, to give up something that you really want to benefit that other person. There's a few verses. I won't read every single one of those, um, but I will mention the self-sacrifice. John 3.16 is is kind of the, the easy one on that. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So self-sacrifice, God gave of himself to show us the love that he actually has for us. The next thing, commitment. I think love requires a commitment. You have to be willing to commit to love that other person regardless of what happens, regardless of the circumstances that come up. Because if you love someone, you're willing to give yourself for that person or give something that you really want for that person, but something changes in the world or whatever, and you choose that no longer they are worthy of your self-sacrifice, or maybe in this instance, they're not worthy of that, they're not good enough, I don't believe that's love either. So whatever your definition of love is, you need self-sacrifice, you need commitment. And the verse that I'll read for that one is Romans 13, 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Forever loves others has fulfilled the law. So we have this continuing debt, this, this debt that we need to commit to love other people. Not just to commit to love, but to, in our love, commit to other people uh, to behave with self-sacrifice and then unconditionally. So not only do we need to be willing to give of ourselves, and not only do we need to be willing to have a commitment that no matter the circumstances that have, true love is unconditional. True love does not depend on how the other person responds to what you give them. True love is saying that regardless of how this impacts me, even if you're the one negatively impacting me in this case, I am going to put your best interest, your eternal best interest above my personal interest right now because I am going to pour out love on you. I am going to show you love in this instance. And the last thing that binds them all together, humility. If at any point, if you have all three of those characteristics with your decision on how you're going to love other people, what decision to make, but at any point, it's not out of humility, you're willing to sacrifice yourself, you're willing to commit, you're willing to do that unconditionally, but when it benefits you, or when it makes you look good, that's not love. Love is doing that knowing that you may be in the background your whole life because of that. Love is making the choice that helps someone else, that puts them above you. So I think you can have any definition of love that varies from mine or or whatever, but it needs to have self-sacrifice, commitment, be unconditional, and be binded by humility for that to be true love. So the first thing when we're looking at how do we make good Christian decisions, show love. Whatever your definition of love is, show love. And I am a big, big encourager of when I say whatever your definition of love is, figure out what your definition of love is before you're in the instance where you're having to figure out if this is love or not. Because as people, we like to change that definition a little bit. We like to change what we think things are to fit our circumstances. So figure out what your definition of love is before you need to use it to make a decision that could be tough, that could potentially harm you, 
And then you're trying to figure out what your definition of love is. So figure out what your definition of love is. The second verse, and this is the one that uh, Mr. Tim read for us earlier. And this is going to be James 3. And in James 3, starting in verse uh, 13, we say, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, their deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, reap a harvest of, of righteousness. So, when we're making good decisions, how do we do that? We show love, we seek wisdom in those decisions. And now that verse alone, it's probably its own sermon. You could talk about what are those definitions, what are those things define love. But what I want to do next, my church in Midland, Texas, this pastor gave a whole sermon again on wisdom. And he gave five really applicable points on how do we seek wisdom so that we can apply it in our lives. And so, church, I'm not going to pretend that I came up with this list. This is from Jason Hatch at Redeemer Church in Midland, Texas. But I want to share that with you guys because I think this is a really practical way for us to figure out how can I make decisions that align me with the will of God so I can move that decision point earlier and make the right decision when I do so. And the first thing, and oh man, we got real small font on this one. The first thing is, is there a direct command in the Bible? Is there a direct command? When you are seeking wisdom, you need to seek the source of wisdom. And if I'm trying to figure out Again, I'm an engineer, so I make nerdy analogies. If I'm trying to figure out how to use an Excel spreadsheet to make it the best, I can talk to someone who's been trained on Excel, but if I can find the person who made Excel, who wrote that code, they're going to know how to use it way better than anyone else. They're going to know the shortcuts. They're going to have the true wisdom. So if I'm trying to find wisdom on this earth, I can find people who have experience on this earth. And I encourage you, you should. But there is no better source of wisdom, and I would argue there is no wisdom apart from the wisdom that comes from the one who created the earth, who knows how to use it more than anything. And where do we find that? We find that in the Bible. So the number one thing we can do when we're attempting to seek wisdom is check our Bibles. Is there a direct command? And you probably can't read it. Proverbs 19.16 is the verse that we have applied here. And as I look and I start to run out of time, I'll, I'll speed through these a little bit. This verse says, if you keep God's commandments, you keep life. That's what that verse says in, in summary. The second thing, does it play into your weaknesses? I think this is a really important question, especially when we're talking, let's go to the analogy of the cookie again. If your friend says, hey, I'm going to go walk to the cafe and get some water, just go hang out with people, you're seeking, is this wisdom for me to do so? If you're trying to not get a cookie, and you know that cookie's in there, and when you're in that cafe, for whatever reason, you always grab a cookie, that's playing into your weakness. It's probably not wise of you in that instance to go to that cafeteria, to go to that cafe with them. So does it play into your weakness? So maybe the Bible does not have a direct command against this, but you know by doing that thing, you're putting yourself in a position to sin in other ways or to make other bad choices that maybe aren't loving. You probably shouldn't do it. That's wisdom there. And the verse with that one is Proverbs 26, 11. And that verse says, Like a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to its folly. So if you know, you have experience with yourself, that you are prone to these things, and you continue to choose to make those decisions, 
It's like a dog to its vomit. So no, does this play into my weaknesses? And should I avoid it because of that? Step three, don't sacrifice long-term reward for momentary gain. So is this going to bring me pleasure right now? It doesn't fit into those two, but it brings me pleasure right now, but it's going to hurt me in the long run. And the biblical story here has to do with Esau and Jacob. And Esau is super hungry. And he ends up selling his birthright to his brother for a bowl of soup. And we hear that story and we laugh, and we don't know the extent of Esau's hunger, but he probably could have made it a little longer to find soup that didn't literally cost him his birthright. But are we sacrificing in this decision momentary gain for a long-term, or are we sacrificing long-term reward for momentary gain? Four, ask God for wisdom. Pray to God. Seek it out in the Bible, but actually ask God himself. James 1 verse 5 says that any of us who pray to God and ask for wisdom, God gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to them. If you ask God for wisdom, if you are truly, earnestly seeking out wisdom, God will give that wisdom to you. That is a promise we have from the, the brother of God, like Jesus himself, who walked with him, who saw that. If we seek out wisdom, we will find wisdom. So is there a direct command? Does it play into our weaknesses? Are we sacrificing long-term for short-term? Are we asking God for wisdom? And then the final one, seek wise counsel. Again, you cannot stress enough, I cannot stress enough how important it has been in my life and in the lives of others that I've seen when they have surrounded themselves with people who, again, not only have experience with this world, but have experience with true wisdom that comes from the Scripture. When they surround themselves and their decision-making with people who know the Bible, who know them, so they know if it plays into their weaknesses. Who knows that person who, who can truly speak wisdom into you. There is nothing greater than that. So how can we move our decision point sooner? By trusting in God, by trusting in his plan. And I would encourage you to look in your life if you have any doubts in God's plan and what God has for you. Look in your life. Where has God came through when I didn't want him to? When I wanted to go my own way and he took that somewhere else, where has God came through? Can I trust him in those moments? And if the answer is yes, all right. But let's figure out, if you already believe that, make sure you consciously are aware that this is the plan I want to follow. Whenever I'm in a time of uncertainty, this is the plan that I choose to follow. Because then when you're faced with that decision point, it's not, you know, what is the plan that I need to follow? It's here's the plan. Do I follow it? And if I'm trying to follow it, what decision do I make? Show love and seek wisdom. So I talk about this idea of decision points, and as I wrap up today, what's really fascinating about decision points to me, as people, we naturally like to think we are fully autonomous. We have the ability to make these decisions, and we are making decisions all the time. And so when you read the book, The Power of Habit, and you see that he says 90% of the things we do are from habit. We're not consciously thinking about, you want to take a step back. That doesn't seem right. But what's interesting about decision points, because I believe that we do, if you're consciously making a decision to change something and you're faced with that, even if it's a habit, you have that decision point. I think that we have the opportunity to take these decision points and run with it. But in the instance with the cookie, you may only have one realistic time that you will choose to not get that cookie. And that's the moment when you're sitting at your desk or you're on the walk to the cafe that you realize, this isn't what I wanted to do. Do I actually want to do this? Think about when you're buying a new car or a used car and you have to sign all these papers. You would say every single time you sign your name on that paper is a new decision point you're making. But if you think about it, in reality, 
Every time you sign your name is not, do I really want this car? At some point before that, you decided, I'm going to sign all these papers regardless of how many they put in front of me. You had one decision point. Maybe halfway through you read something and it makes you think again, do, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to sign this paper? So in this case, where you may have 15 times that you're actually signing something that you would say is a decision point, you may have twice that you are actually making that conscious decision in that routine and the trigger decision point uh, routine and reward cycle. You may have twice that you're actually making that decision to make the change to do what you want to do. If you're a believer and you sit here today, this may be a reminder for you. Do I know God? Am I in his word? Am I really being the Christian that I want to be? And this right now may be your decision point. You may have been coming to church for the last five years as a Christian, and you've just came. That's been a routine. That's been a habit. You haven't critically thought, what am I doing with my life? How am I behaving? Am I following the will of God? If that's you, this is your decision point. You may not get a lot more of these. You may get a ton. You may not. This is your decision point. Am I following the will of God? Have I put him as the base plan in my life? And to make that choice, that time that you consciously decide to make that choice. If you're not a believer here today, this is your decision point too. Because I believe that thousands of years ago, God created this earth. And he created a perfect world. And we sinned. And we made it bad. And our sin nature has permeated through every person that lives today. And we are sinful. And we need a savior. But God knew that. That was God's plan all along. He sent his son to die for us, to save us. And that when Jesus took our sins upon him on the cross and he died with those, he rose three days later and our sins did not rise with him. Those sins stayed in the grave. And you have the opportunity to accept that, to take that, uh, that forgiveness from Jesus, from God. You have the opportunity to get that joy that comes with that. And so while you may have that decision point right now, I'm not asking you to say today, this is the very day that I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to turn my life to God. But I'm asking you in this decision point that you may get all the time. You may get it every time you come to church, but you may have those days that you just don't show up. In this decision point, evaluate, is this the time? Is this the time that I really dive in to what this thing says? Is this the time that I really ask the question, is this what I believe? Do I not believe this because I don't want to or because I truly believe it's not the truth? Take this moment, take this time, evaluate who God is in your life. If you're a believer, is he where he should be in your life? If you're an unbeliever, is he God? Evaluate these kinds of questions and think about it. Because church, I tell you, we have these awesome opportunities to make these decisions, to change the habits that we have, to change the routine, and to make good choices. But we don't always get those opportunities. We don't always get to see that chance. So church, again, I just want to say how much I appreciate the opportunity to come up and speak to you guys uh, once again and, and just talk about the love of God, what he's done for us, and that his plan is good. And when we face uncertainty of all kinds, God's plan is good. And we can trust in that, we can rely on that, and we can make good decisions with that. Let me pray for you guys, and then we will stand and go ahead and sing after that. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day. Just thank you for everything you have done, uh, for your will, for uh, your mercies, for your, your forgiveness, God, again, for your sacrifice. That, God, though we sin, though we make bad choices, God, you loved us. Uh, you loved us in spite of, of our sin. 
and you gave yourself for us while we were sinners so that we can love you too. and We can accept that grace. We can accept that forgiveness, Lord. Lord, as we go here today, help us to always remember who you are and who you are to us, what you have done for us, um, your character, and that, God, you don't change. And what we saw in you thousands of years ago is the same you that we see today. What we saw in Jesus and his behaviors is what we see in the character that you have today, God. God, help us to go forth, to make disciples, to uh, honor you in everything that we say and do, Lord. Thank you again for all you are. In your name we pray. Amen.